are listening to Australia's tax news podcast, Tax Talks, the podcast for Australian tax professionals. Welcome to episode 92 of Tax Talks. This is Heidi Robson and thank you to Class for sponsoring this episode. According to a PwC report issued in April 2018, illegal phoenix activity costs Australia 3 to 5 billion Australian dollars each year. So illegal phoenixing is clearly a problem and has been for a long time. In response, the government released an exposure draft in August 2018 that includes four distinct measures to combat illegal phoenix activity. The first one is targeted at creditor-defeating dispositions. And that is a new word, creditor-defeating dispositions, that we will cover later. The second is to prevent the inappropriate backdating of director resignations and the abandonment of companies by directors. I didn't actually even realize until recently that this is even possible, that a director can resign and leave the company without any directors. The third is about extending the director penalty regime to unpaid GST. Until now, the director penalty notice only covers pay-as-you-go withholding and super guarantee payments. And the fourth measure authorizes the commissioner to retain refunds where returns haven't been lodged or other information hasn't been provided. But before we discuss these measures in more detail in another episode, I wanted to get a better understanding how phoenixing actually works. So I went to see Ben Sewell of Sewell and Kettle in Sydney. Ben is an insolvency lawyer and so often deals with the aftermath of illegal phoenix activity. My first question to Ben is, what is a phoenix activity? Here's Ben. Phoenix activity, at a basic definition of it, is that you have two companies, one an old co, one a new co. And the Phoenix transaction is where the assets, so that means the value in the company, the old co, is transferred to the new co for inadequate consideration, i.e. they're getting a bit of a freebie. What it results in is that the creditors of the old co, so the employees who are owed entitlements, the ATO, the suppliers, are left in the lurch and that Altco ultimately goes into liquidation and there is no proper recourse. What it is, is the use of the corporate veil to protect the protagonists or the the people that are behind this from paying their debts. assets out of a company, it should always be at fair value. It should be illegal to move anything out of a company not at fair value. In terms of the research into this area, the academic research indicates that the way to regulate this space is to look at the intention behind the people that are undertaking this activity. It gets very complex if you get into the nuts and the bolts of the value of an enterprise. So what you could say is, well, the old code, the value of the assets, what is the value of the assets? You could transfer all the assets out of the old code to the new code for the market value of those assets as a broken up amount. So that means you'd have the you'd have a truck, you'd have the chairs, the computers, etc., and the book value or the market price for those items is the value that's transferred. But then the goodwill is not accounted for in the transfer. So that's where it starts to get complex. And then there's also the argument that if you have a company that is insolvent that is unable to pay its debts 
it doesn't have any goodwill or value anyway. So if the company is insolvent because of a flood, so that is an act of God that can't be predicted, and the directors decide to sell assets of the company to a new co or license them, to be even more complex, to license those assets to a new co to enable them to continue to trade, one, there's no intention beforehand to do this, and two, the valuation of those assets is what starts to become very complex. So the law would look at that example as not necessarily illegal because the argument comes down to the valuation approach. If there is some consideration paid, then you're still going to face an argument about if it's adequate and that strictly if the directors had ceased to trade and put the company into liquidation, what would that in itself have resulted in? But that's not the concern of this area. This, this area is really concerned about the cyclical use of the corporate veil to basically leave the ATO and FEG and the suppliers in the lurch and to do it intentionally over and over again as part of a business process. A lot of the literature talks about that phoenixing activities can mean that the new corporation is under a new name that is usually similar to the old name. Why would it be similar to the old name so that outsiders don't actually realise that the company has changed? This is an interesting point. So in New Zealand, it is illegal to put a company into liquidation and use the same name. In 2012 in Australia, there was a proposal for similar names prohibitions, okay, where you couldn't just, so for example, if, if it was Sewell and Kettle and I put the company into liquidation, I would open a new company called Sewell and Kettle in brackets NSW or Sewell and Kettle Australia and then continue to trade. It was considered and there was a bill put forward in about 2012, 2013 to prohibit this in Australia and it wasn't uh, proceeded upon. The concern is that it may not be comprehensive enough. Prohibiting similar names being used is one of the indicia of this area, but it's not the essential element. So the government decided in 2012, 2013 that this law wouldn't be proceeded upon because it might have the effect of penalising and making it hard to restructure if you're doing it legitimately. Good, but so Phoenix activists use a similar name to hide the fact that the company actually has changed. That's one way way to do it, yeah. So what you would do is if it was called Sewell and Kettle, my firm, you would put the old company to liquidation and then immediately start up a new company called Sewell and Kettle. Australia? Australia, Sewell and Kettle, Sydney. I see. And when I receive a letter from you or a bill from you and it suddenly says Sewell and Kettle, Australia, of course, I don't realise that it's a different company now. What you can do with companies is you can change the name of the company to its ACN. So that means you can change it from Sewell and Kettle to ACN, whatever our AACN is, and then immediately after the liquidator is appointed, then create a new entity called Sewell and Kettle PTYTD. So there is no controls over that in terms of the company name itself. So it would be very difficult unless you check the ABNs to verify there has been a change. I see. So in that case, you could even it could even be the same name again. It could again, be exactly the same. And it's actually a different company now. Yes, it could be. The first observation I should make is there's plenty of law that could be enforced. So one example of that is the recovery of uncommercial transactions. So if a company goes into liquidation, 
the liquidator has a legal right to make claims for uncommercial transactions. That means gifts or transfers of assets for an amount below the market price. So there's a very straightforward claim there that they can run. The next type of claim a liquidator may have is a claim for insolvent trading against the directors. So that means that debts that were incurred whilst the company was insolvent can be claimed personally against the directors themselves. The next type of claim is an unreasonable director-related transaction claim. So that means going back in time, a liquidator can claw back monies that have been unreasonably transferred to the directors or their associates or their relatives. So that means if they've basically paid out an amount of money that can't be explained through a wage or hasn't been properly undertaken or as a gift, it can be clawed back. If there are monies that are transferred out of a company, a liquidator could also argue that it's part of a loan account, that the directors themselves or their associates have just borrowed the money. That can be claimed back. The point I've got is that in this space, there is plenty of law already that would allow a liquidator to take action and ASIC can also step into the liquidator's shoes and take action as well. So they could run these claims themselves. But if the liquidator doesn't have any money at bank and what you may expect is these are assetless appointments or that the liquidator has paid a small amount, so it's paid five to 10 grand, for example, to undertake the basic work, the liquidator cannot be forced to undertake these actions or move the liquidation forward to a point where they're able to investigate it and report back thoroughly to creditors about what's occurred. It's a tough one to fix because it's getting more and more sophisticated. I guess it's one of those things where people continue to look for loopholes and the policing is a big issue because there's no one to police it. That's the big challenge because if you want to to regulate and control it, if you make a law, someone's then got to enforce it. Part of it is the liquidators don't have any money. So if they don't have any money at bank, no one can force them to do anything about it to investigate it. This has been something that's been going on for a very long time. In fact, you might even say it's the most Australian form of tax evasion there is. It started with the bottom of the harvest schemes in the 1960s, and there's been waves of different methodologies that have been used. And the current term that's used for this type of tax evasion is called Phoenix activity. The term Phoenix activity is not something that is capable of precise definition. And one of the problems that we've had in the industry is actually defining it. So it's something that everyone has heard of in the insolvency industry, but it's a concept that no one has clearly defined yet. It's getting more and more sophisticated and underlying it, there's potentially big dollars at stake here. Problem is no one can actually work out how much is at stake, how much is actually being lost to the tax man and how much is being lost to the economy. Because it's like a sieve, it's like money that just leaks out of the economy and isn't tracked, isn't collected as taxes, isn't paid to employees as entitlements and is paid out by our competitors who are forced to underprice for jobs in specific industries. You said before that now it's called Phoenix Activity. What was it called before? 
One way to look at it is to look at it as being linked to tax evasion. So the bottom of the harbour scheme was a, a less sophisticated scheme that was used in the 1960s, whereby what tax promoters would do is they would say, look, we will take one company that has assets, we will strip those assets out of the company, put it in another company for no consideration, so for free, and at the same time appoint a, a director who doesn't have any assets or is a, a front man who basically doesn't have any books and records and isn't able to explain what occurred to a liquidator. So this is something that has, has gone on for a long time. So that was the very basic version of phoenixing. Which is asset stripping. Asset stripping, where you just take the asset out of a company, where basically the company just sells everything it has to somebody else, leaves the liability liabilities in the old company and moves right. everything they have into the new company. That's right. So that's the kind of the basic version of phoenixing. How has it become more sophisticated now? It's become more sophisticated because it involves different transactions. It involves multiple entities. You have payroll entities, you have companies that fulfill a particular function in a corporate group. You have the government being involved with the fair entitlement guarantee. So that means the government is actually picking up the tab, paying for unpaid entitlements. And also you have a whole swath. So you've got a whole different menu of Corporations Act and taxation laws, prohibitions, claims that could potentially recover money for this type of activity. So it's become more complex, both on the regulatory side and also the planning side that goes into thinking about this in advance by the people that are undertaking this. The critical report that's come out in the last few years is there's a group of academics called the Phoenix Research Team, including some very prominent corporate law um, academics. And they produce three different reports analysing comprehensively Phoenix activity in Australia. And one of the key conclusions that they made, or the key conclusion, is that there can be legal and there can be illegal Phoenix activity. And that what it comes down to is the intention of the directors at the time that they um, enter into the transactions. So that makes it even more complex in that you have high-level academics that in two minds about what is legal and what is illegal. The example that they used was... Uh, a business that is the victim of a flood. So if the business is a victim of a flood, it is the victim of a catastrophic, unpredictable event. In order for the business to recover, they may well transfer assets to a new entity, they may well sell the entity, they may well have debts that are unable to be paid. And whatever process they undertake is not something that was a premeditated process. On the other hand, uh, the Phoenix Research Team looks at the much more complex, sophisticated approaches, which may include um, having illegal staff, i.e. staff of a company that are not authorised to work, that are paid cash, um, ABN fraud, to use multiple ABNs to confuse the tax authorities, non-remission of PAYG and GST and income tax, and a cyclical process where companies are put into liquidation over and over and over again with an adverse effect on the creditors and the government and the taxmen an adverse effect on the tax man because the ATO doesn't collect its PAYG and GST and income tax and an adverse effect on the government because they will be paying out employee entitlements through FEG repeatedly, so the fair entitlement guarantee. Could you talk more about this fair entitlement guarantee? The genesis of the fair entitlement guarantee is that the government made a policy decision 
to support employees that are victims of liquidations. So what that means is the government has set up a scheme to pay certain entitlements. So I think it's up to 13 weeks of unpaid leave, a certain amount of unpaid wages, etc., for employees. So that if a company goes into liquidation, the government helps out those people that are most in need. What makes that particularly complex is that if the company goes into liquidation and it's a premeditated Phoenix trans- transaction, then that actually means the government uh, doubles down. Not only does it not collect taxes, but also it may be forced to contribute through FEG to paying unpaid entitlements for employees. And that could also mean that the employees are into it as well. This is the difficult one because the employees, by their nature, don't have control of the enterprise. FEG specifically excludes the directors and the owners and the relatives of directors from being entitled to monies under FEG. But in all of the matters I've been involved in, I think there's been at least a general suspicion amongst the employees that things haven't been quite quite right. They've seen different ABNs on their pay slips. They've seen companies going into liquidation repeatedly. And so they'd have at least a suspicion that, that there's something going on with their employer. Yeah, and also what is family? It would be very difficult for the ATO to track that far. When the ATO thinks of family, they probably think father, mother and the children. Whereas in, in many communities, family goes a lot wider. The easy workout from this is that the directors just pay their wage before they put the company into liquidation. So that's the easy work workout. They, they just don't pay um, anyone else. As long as they've got enough money to pay their own wage and the wages of any relatives who are also employees, then that won't be uh, recovered in, in any way by the liquidator, provided it's linked to an employment contract, which is pre-agreed. I see. So the directors can pay themselves a wage? Yes. And that won't be clawed back? No, it's not a preference claim. An employer-employee relationship is not seen as a preference claim. There is, if it's an unreasonable amount of money, that can be clawed back. But if it's a wage, it's a pre-agreed wage, no, that, that won't be uh, recovered if the company goes into liquidation. So most liquidation cases you see would have director wages being paid and then employee wages not being paid because they are then covered by the government. So the typical liquidation in a small to medium enterprise space, which is what I see, is the largest creditor is the ATO, and they are claiming GST dollars, income tax, and PAYG. And then it depends on the type of enterprise. For example, building and construction enterprise, then you'd expect there to be unpaid entitlements. Next, supplier debts. And look, it just depends on the type of enterprise, but you'd expect the ATO to be the biggest creditor, and then employees, and then suppliers. Are you a liquidator? No, I'm not. Where do you fit into the puzzle? An insolvency lawyer in this space comes into this area in a lot of different ways. The most basic way could be advising the directors. So the directors, when they first get into problems, would look to their accountant. So they'd look to their external accountant to say, hey, what can we do? External accountants may be too close to the clients. Whatever advice they give isn't protected, privileged advice, and they mightn't have a, um, a strong knowledge of insolvency law and processes. So that's the first step. Next step is insolvency lawyers also act for the creditors that are owed money or insolvency lawyers act for the liquidator or the administrator or the receiver who is appointed and help them to navigate through the complex issues they face. And insolvencies are generally uh, litigation heavy. So that means there's always a lot of cases going on because there's assets in dispute and there's hard issues to deal with. As an insolvency lawyer, 
We do a lot of work in the litigation space. We run cases. Fair entitlement guarantee. What does that cover? FEG, the Fair Entitlements Guarantee, is a government scheme. The essential element is that a company goes into liquidation or if it's a uh, partnership that the partners go bankrupt. But there's very few partnerships these days, so you think it's a liquidation. So if an employee, so you've got to have an employer-employee relationship, the employer, who's the company, that's right, that is the company, goes into liquidation. FEG steps in. And what it does is it actually steps into the shoes of the employees and it pays certain entitlements. The entitlements are these, up to 13 weeks of unpaid wages, and that's capped, annual leave, long service leave, payment in lieu of a, of a redundancy and payment in lieu of the notice of termination of up to five weeks. So this is a scheme that's changed a little bit. It was once called GEARS. It was once called the General Employee Entitlements and Redundancy Scheme. And what it does is it looks to protect basic entitlements and to make contributions to employees. And then that actually gives FEG, so the Department of Jobs and Small Business, it gives FEG a seat in liquidation. So it steps into the shoes of the creditors and they have the right to vote. And FEG has become more active in this space. Are most of the cases you see genuine liquidations or do you also come across quite a few phoenixing cases? There is a lot of phoenix activity out there. The first thing is this, anyone who's what's called a phoenix operator is probably not going to go to an insolvency lawyer at first because they're going to be helped out by their accountant or by someone else who is potentially a former liquidator or someone who is an advisor. Lawyers come into this space if things go wrong. So if there's a liquidator's examination or FEG decides to fund a liquidation or something occurs that means that the the directors need to carefully examine their position. So, so that's how I become involved in it. Can you give me an example of how Phoenix activity works in the real world? The first thing is it's complex. So that means it's very unlikely that someone who is, say, a builder or who is a general practice accountant can actually operate this or put it together. So what you have is you have a, a bunch of consultants out there. ASIC calls them pre-insolvency advisors. Lawyers tend to call them Phoenix operators. But these people are going out actively promoting schemes. So what they would do is they would conglomerate together a bunch of clients. So that means they could be restaurants or nightclubs in the inner city, or they could be builders, or they could be scaffolders or, or something. And they said to them, look, why don't you outsource all of your employees to me? I will employ them all. I'll issue pay slips. I will pay their wage. And at the end of every month, I'm going to come and see you and give you a paper bag full of cash, which is effectively some sort of kickback for the PAYG and all the taxes that don't ultimately get remitted onto the ATO. It's a tax evasion relationship. And the sophistication comes in because the Phoenix operators are able to put forward directors who are assetless, they're able to manage the ATO, they're able to put their payroll entities into liquidation uh, repeatedly. 
they're able to manage the day-to-day issues. This is an industry. And in terms of the industry, I, I wouldn't be surprised if most people in the building and construction industry were approached. Most people in the recruitment industry were approached. Most people in the hospitality industry were approached for this specific scheme, which is the outsourcing of payroll to a third-party operator who is engaging in tax evasion. I always thought of Phoenix Activity as business people, but it's actually specific companies who just do the payroll, nothing else. No, that's just the best example of it. That's the example that today is the most prevalent, and that's the the most sophisticated example, and that's the example that I think is the biggest dollar in terms of the the value at stake out there. But you're right, there is a... Um, if you're in an industry where you can repeatedly put a company into liquidation, then that's an option. And there are actually lawyers out there that are doing that. So there are lawyers that are repeatedly putting their incorporated practice into liquidation and not paying their tax debts. And if you get onto the Law Society or the Law Institute of Victoria websites, you will find examples of lawyers that have had misconduct charges against them for not remitting super and paying income tax. And it's something that's on the the radar of the um, uh, the Law Institute of Victoria and the Law Society of New South Wales. So I'm saying, look, it's not just the building and construction industry or the hospitality industry that's uh, doing this. But it's often done through a company that just does the payroll. That's exactly right. With companies going into liquidation over and over again. And that's how you do it at a big scale. Smaller operators might just do it for their own business. Yes. Then there's not as much dollars involved. But when you approach range of businesses and you get all their payroll and you just focus on the payroll, then that's how you scale. Yes. In Phoenixing. In Phoenixing. The problem with if you're a... Um, a company director that's looking to phoenix your own company over and over again, then what you'll probably find is it'll get harder over time. Sooner or later, nobody will do business with you. Well, that's the risk. It'll come up in uh, your credit checks that your suppliers do. It will, what you may face is because you're the appointed director, you may face tax office action. There may be complexity if you're in the building and construction industry because perhaps your clients will see it and they'll require bigger bonds or bank guarantees to be paid up front. Perhaps your employees will leave. It may cause problems for your construction contracts. So you may need to novate contracts and do things to deal with the fallout from a liquidation. And you'll need to go to creditors meetings and you'll need to um, deal with liquidators yourself. Do you think that the effect, the fair entitlement guarantee facilitates this large scale phoenixing through payroll companies? Yes, I do. And that's also the opinion of the government as well. In a May 2017 report, they've referred to it as a, um, a moral hazard. And what that means is the government could be inadvertently facilitating it by being supportive of the employees. Yes. So one solution, and this sounds like a very harsh solution, one solution would be to stop FEG and then put the onus back on the employees to watch out for poor for poor employers because at the moment the, the employees don't really have to don't have to worry even if they have a strong suspicion that they are part of a phoenixing activity they don't have to worry about it because there's fag that's one point of view the government's policy would would need to change significantly one thing i should say is though is this does protect workers that are the weakest in society and the capacity of these workers to 
detect phoenix in? Well, to control their environment. If they work in a building and construction and they've got no trade, it may be difficult for them to monitor this themselves. On the other hand, if we're going to start to talk about how to regulate and control this, I think the government has completely lost its say about this. And it's not just an opinion that I hold. The submissions about this that were actually released this week by ARIDA, which is the Australian Restructuring and Solvency Turnaround Association, call for a Phoenix activity offence at law. Phoenix activity itself is not defined in law. It's referred to in cases, but there is no actual offence in either the Corporations Act or the tax laws. And so the first step could be to define it, and I think that would be an appropriate approach. The government's going to face a problem that if they start to define it, what then? If you create laws, you also need to create processes and funding and delegated authority, I guess, to regulate it and control it. One of the essential elements of this type of activity is that you have a company that is assetless. So if you point a liquidator over it and they don't have any money, no one can make them do work to investigate what occurred. So the question is, who's going to pay them? ASIC has the jurisdiction, but for them to actually start to potentially take over that role from the liquidators, there's no policy direction I've seen in that direction. The nationalisation of this area is not on a policy agenda. So then it still comes down to the liquidators themselves who probably aren't going to do anything about it unless they get funds. The Commonwealth of Australia, we all, lose probably billions of dollars each year through phoenixing. I know, I don't know how to say, but, you know, phoenixing costs a lot of money and I can imagine it would cost less money to police it than the money we lose through phoenixing. The Phoenix Research, and that's the group of academics that I referred to before, one of their three reports was a report that looked at the empirical evidence out there about how widespread this is and the value to the economy. And their conclusion was is that there is no set of information they can call upon, no empirical evidence that they can call upon and find to actually estimate other value. So it's probably our billions, but we don't know. We have no idea. My thoughts would be that the first step may be to actually try and quantify the value of this. But I would suspect you're right. I would suspect that the value that's lost would be more than adequate to pay the liquidators to actually do the work to investigate this. And in terms of the value that's lost, you could also refer to externalities. So not just tax dollars and not just unpaid debts and not FEG, but also if you have a competitor that's doing this and they're not remitting taxes, they're going to have a, a substantial competitive advantage against you. And that's going to mean that's going to basically mean you earn less money. So if you're in the building and construction or whatever um, industry you're in and you're competing against someone that doesn't pay taxes, then effectively you potentially may need to reduce your prices below a commercial amount just to compete with them. So that's a very significant externality. And it may mean in some industries that you're unable to compete with the black economy. So I've spoken to recruiters in the labour hire industry that just aren't able to compete because they aren't in the black economy. Pay-as-you-go withholding. Let's say an employee earns $100, the employer withholds $10, pays out $90, but then doesn't pass the $10 to the ATO. Yep. Does the employee get a credit for this pay-as-you-go withholding that was withheld from their 
salary but wasn't passed on to the ATO, or do they need to pay this $10 of pay-as-you-go withholding again? No, the employee doesn't have the obligation to remit it. The employer does. So that unremitted PAYG amount becomes an unsecured debt in a liquidation. So in terms of the Phoenix activity model, which is to put the company into liquidation, that $0.10 of the PAYG or the sorry, the $10 amount becomes a debt in the liquidation. So the employee isn't responsible for paying that to the ATO. Let's say the $90 wasn't paid. Does yep. the Fair Entitlement Guarantee now pay the employee $100 or $90? The Fair Entitlement Guarantee pays as one lump sum those items less tax. So the Fair Entitlement Guarantee FEG is a, um administration fund. It writes a cheque. So it withholds the tax. So and it would pay $90? It would, but it's not responsible for other tax. It's, it's basically just remitting proportions of salaries and leave that the employee would have received at, in hand had they been paid those entitlements. Okay, so the fair entitlement guarantee pays the $90, yep. but not the $10 That's pay right. as you go withholding. Does the employee now receive a credit for those $10? on their tax return, even though the $10 hadn't been passed to the ATO? Yes, they do. Because the way the ATO sees it is, um, or sorry, not the way the ATO sees it, the way the law operates is that the employer with the PAYG is in something like a trustee-trust relationship. When they're presently entitled to remit the money, it's looked at at law as to being something like a trust relationship. So the employee isn't responsible for it, the withholding of the monies. I see. So the employer basically acted as a trustee of the government when they withheld the $10? Yes. So the employee basically paid the $10 tax the moment it was withheld from their salary? Yes. One of the reforms that's been implemented is single-touch payroll, is where you have, for example, software set up so that at the same time the employees paid their wage, the PAYG is remitted to the ATO. So same day. So it's one touch. That means when the employer... Uh, processes the payroll, the super's paid, the PAYG's paid, the net wage is paid. The government initially announced that all employers, this is a year or two ago, that all employers in Australia would have to completely comply with single-touch payroll. So that means even uh, small to medium-sized enterprises, small withholders. After the budget, they then recanted on the, the payment and it's broken down now into single-touch payroll as being either reporting and payment or just reporting. But if you're a small or medium enterprise in Australia, the obligations you have going forward are reporting only, not reporting and remission. So that would be one quick way to solve this, obviously, to basically require every enterprise in Australia to both report and remit their payroll in full. Now, that's been seen as a bit uh, draconian, And so I think the government thought that it practically wouldn't be able to, to implement. So, for example, every single enterprise, no matter how small they are being forced to do it, may be counterproductive because they just wouldn't have the capacity or the accounting software or the know-how to be able to do it. And so the government stepped back on that budgetary um, plan. So single-touch payroll will make it harder to do phoenixing? I would say that in terms of the sophisticated approach, probably not. It's only if the government was to follow through with the mandated, or with the mandated plan of requiring single-touch payroll 
to be both, to include both the reporting and the remission at the same time, whereas it has, hasn't done that. So that would mean that you could, as an employer, so say you've set up a parallel entity, you could comply with One Touch Payroll by reporting the obligations, but just not uh, remit them, or remit them in part, or seek instalments, or something that basically means that over time there is a shortfall that's built up. Michael Cranston, was the scheme he got connected to, was that a phoenixing activity? Yeah, this is the Plutus payroll affair. This is something that's been widely reported. Now, the first thing we should say is Mr Cranston has not been found guilty of any crime, although he's been charged. So this is something that's in the courts, but it's been widely reported. So I don't, I don't want there to be any aspersion cast. But what I can do is I can talk about what I've read. What the allegation is, is that a small group of people, so we're talking about three or four protagonists over a long period of time have a sophisticated payroll scam, which they've uh, developed. And one of those protagonists has killed himself. The allegations are that there's been a mixture of organised crime, so the sale of drugs, and the laundering of those funds through these entities as mixing those entities with uh, legitimate enterprises. I see. Okay, and so it had nothing to do with phoenixing. It does. But my point is that... It went beyond. It, it went, went beyond. beyond that. It used the payroll scam technique to... Uh, perfect the laundering of funds, but it went beyond that because it was about mixing illegally obtained funds with the legally obtained funds. I see. But so the phoenixing part of the entire enterprise was what you described before, is that you set up a company that does the payroll for a range of other businesses and then they don't pass on payers you go withholding. So the Plus payroll scam was sophisticated. It was sophisticated because the protagonists were allegedly received up-to-date information from the ATO through leaks from the ATO about ATO enforcement uh, policy. So that meant that allegedly they knew a step in advance about exactly what the ATO would do. So that meant they could set up all these entities. They promoted a business called Plutus Payroll, which had software and had related processes that would enable them to do it on an industrial scale. And the estimate that's been published is about $160 million lost to the ATO over a long period of time. And what they would do is they would set up an entity, they would put their clients into it. So that means uh, legitimate recruitment companies, nightclubs, bars, uh, building and construction firms, builders, scaffolders, whatever the particular client was. All of their employees would be hired through the payroll entity they would create. They would have a, a dummy director. From what I've heard, they had one guy called the big guy who was in organised crime who uh, no one would mess with and he was the guy who organised all these uh, dummy uh, directors. They would put the company into liquidation for a certain period of time, six months, a year, depending on what they thought would occur with the ATO policy. And all of the funds that hadn't been remitted would be taken out as cash. Totally what I've heard about this is that the way they solidified the relationship with their clients was that one, they would give them the kickback. So that meant that their clients would receive a cash kickback each week or each month, depending on their remissions, but they'd also be given other funds. So that's where it becomes more complex because of the drug dealing side of it. If we're talking $160 million, there's a lot of money going around here. What happened, and this is how it basically came to light in terms of 
the public is that the regulation of this activity was taken out of the hands of the liquidators appointed over all these entities and the federal police and the ATO stepped in. And when the federal police stepped in, what you saw was wiretaps, saw detailed information from iPhones, emails, surveillance. And so one of the key assumptions of the protagonists of the Plutus payroll scam was that no one would look into what they were doing. And because they'd been able to do it for 10 years or more, they were able to continue that behaviour. But when it became a criminal investigation by the federal police and the federal police were able to take over all their iPhones, the evidence was able to come out and the evidence was able to be compiled. There's been no convictions to date, but this is something that's going through the courts. And as I said, I think I should stress that no one's been convicted of any criminal offences, but there's been a hell of a lot of information published about this through the Herald and uh, another Telegraph and online. What is YTAP? You mentioned before when they went oh, to... One of my first jobs was I was a judge's associate and in 2001, 2002, what was interesting was a lot of the trials that I saw, the police just started to get the signals from mobile or telephones to be able to cross-locate where defendants were at particular times, when they made calls and who they called. It's become a lot more uh, sophisticated today. That means that the federal police can essentially take over your iPhone. So that means all of these are protagonists. They were having uh, meetings and they were having discussions. And while they were having those uh, discussions, the federal police were able to tape their entire conversations unbeknownst to them through their iPhones. So that means they took over the iPhone and they initiated the recording of conversations. Wow, I didn't even know that with, was possible. Uh, without their own knowledge. I see. So they can not just listen to active conversations that are happening in a phone call. They can actually use the phone like a listening device. Yes, a proactive device. This is what it makes it particularly uh, salacious because there's been a lot of evidence published about their attempts to cover this up after the fact. There have been attempts to cover it up after the fact by the protagonists. Yes, Not, not by the police or the public. No, no, no. Yeah. What I meant by that was that when I said the attempts to cover this up, the best example of that is um, Michael Cranston, who worked at the ATO, who was allegedly giving them the information about ATO policies, has also been charged with a perversion of the course of justice because he became involved in this and he was essentially charged for it afterwards for trying to find out inside information about where the investigation into his son was up to. So they already knew that there was an investigation into his son, but they didn't know how far it went, or they didn't even know that there was an investigation? I don't know, but he um, tried to find out and tried to influence it. That was the crime that he yes. has, has been charged with. You mentioned ABN fraud before yep. at the very start. How does ABN fraud work? With the more complex Phoenix activity, one of the methodologies that may be used to confuse the ATO is to use different ABNs, to mix ABNs or to use fake ABNs. Funds that are remitted or paid become untraceable funds. So that's really ABN fraud, where you use different ABNs and you use fake ABNs to basically confuse the ATO. So that means that the time period you've got before the company needs to be put into liquidation is extended. The matching of information just isn't able to occur by uh, the ATO.
we talked about how difficult it is to tell whether it's legal phoenixing or illegal phoenixing. It probably would help to call legal phoenixing not legal phoenixing, <laughs> to call it something else, okay. yeah. and oh, to great. only make phoenixing the illegal activity. The phoenixing activity itself is actually not that complicated in terms of you just move the assets into a different company yeah. and then leave the liabilities in the old company. That's right. That's, and yes, there are many variations that make it more complicated, but the phoenixing activity itself is actually quite straightforward. Yep, it is. But it's how it's done. It's, it's always complex. It's hard to do if you're going to sit down and think it through. I mean, there'd be employers to deal with, there'd be the ATO, there'd be customers, you'd have to send out new contracts, you know, there'd be there's all sorts of things you'd have to do. To actually do a, to actually, actually do, do a Phoenix. To actually do it, yeah. Mm. So that's why it's easier to outsource it because they take all the risk and they do everything. Yes. Is how they make money. Ah, oh, yes, okay, okay. Yeah, so a little operator, a little car which doesn't know how to do Phoenixing, they get approached by somebody who's done it many times, they have this payroll company and then they do it for them. Spot on. Or an accountant does it for them or a liquidator does it for them. Yes. Mm. I should say a former liquidator. One of the things that I've seen in the Phoenix activity space is that a lot of the promoters, so the people that are organising it, not currently appointed insolvency practitioners or currently registered liquidators, but people that have left the profession. Perhaps they failed. Perhaps they want to chase, say, easy dollars. That's one of the things I'm seeing over and over again. I see. So it's, it's often liquidators who learned the game from, from the legal side, from what they've, what they've seen. seen. And, and they go they... out and they start to implement it themselves to get easy dollars. There are solutions that have been proposed. One of the solutions the government has proposed is to have a cab rank for the liquidators. It hasn't followed through on that. Cab rank is in CAB. So what it is, there's been allegations put and, you know, there's plenty of evidence out there that some liquidators are, are, into, it. are into it. How about that? So the way to, to cure that is to change the process in which liquidators are appointed. So liquidators can be appointed by the directors themselves. So if you take that away and someone who is completely impartial has got to be appointed, that may change the game. So that's one proposal. The government hasn't followed through on that because the corollary of that is, is if you have a cab rank and... The oh, directors cab are, rank, yes. as in lots of cabs. As, That's exactly right. Ah, that would see. mean that somebody might have to pay them. And so the question is, if the directors don't pay them, who pays them their fee? There's a lot of debate in the industry about that. So that's one proposal. Second proposal, and I think this is every industry group, so Arita is the main proponent of this, but to have a, a Phoenix activity offence. And the Phoenix research team, I'm argued this as well, that you need to have something specific and if you have a specific offence, that means that you're able to look at how to police it. The Phoenix research team, basically, their viewpoint was this, in that it's a bit like a criminal offence. You need to prove intention. And that raises a lot of problems because if you had a crime and you had to specifically work out an offence, that would mean you would have to get involved in detailed analysis about what that offence is. So if it was a homicide... You have manslaughter, you have murder, and the difference between the two of them is intention. And that means you need to have the police step in, take evidence. You need to have a jury trial. You need to have a whole process that's undertaken before someone is found guilty of it. Whereas in the corporate space, we don't have that process in place. We have the liquidators and we have ASIC. And ASIC just doesn't have the resources. I think their enforcement team has about 40 in it. I'm not sure about the current For the entire amount. of Australia. 
Yeah, and there's a million entities out there, trusts, companies, etc. So obviously they don't have the resources. The liquidators, as we said, they also run a commercial enterprise. So if they don't get paid, there's nothing that you can do to force them to undertake investigations. One of the approaches in the past is that the Phoenix operators destroy all the books and records when they get appointed. So the liquidators on the first day that they're appointed don't even have access to the basic information they need to understand the transactions that have been undertaken. So from day one, they put it at a significant disadvantage. So if you do take steps to define this as an offence, either a, a crime or an offence which is a breach of the Corporations Act, someone's got to take steps to enforce that. If you do the root cause analysis, you then start to get into the real problem, which is what do you do about a cash economy and how do you control it? The main, I suppose, the global uh, solution to this is to have a cashless economy because it means that no one can actually engage in a black economy. How does the cash economy or the black economy come into phoenixing? Apart from the kickbacks you mentioned, yep. I don't see any cash. What I'm saying is that if you go down and you do the root cause analysis about how to, to regulate and control this, you get down to a point where you, if you don't have any evidence about it, if the books and records are destroyed, how do you actually track this information? So my point was that maybe the global solution is to have a cashless economy. Now, there's no, I don't think there's anyone in Australia that's uh, seriously going to say that that's going to be, that Australia's going to be a cashless economy in the next few years. Maybe in uh, 20 years, I don't, I don't know. But that's one of the root cause issues in that how do you control a black economy? The next issue is accounts in terms of tax returns, in terms of the information they require, tightening up the accounting process itself. One of the solutions that's being implemented right now is called the DIN, the Director's Identification Number, which means that every director needs to show identification before they're able to become a de jure director, so a validly appointed director. They need to do an ID check. And I'm surprised that they don't need to do that at the moment. You could appoint your dog as a director and ASIC will still, read, will still appoint them. Yes, on or the, just a fictitious person like Bob Smith and his wife Sally Smith or just that's make true. up anybody. That's true. You may have a problem, though, because if you want to open a bank account, you're going to need to have an ID check. Yes. But, um, so the banks are more diligent than the ASIC in this The case. banks are forced to, yeah. Mm. There's also industry-based uh, solutions. So you've got different problems, say, in the building and construction industry, whereby, you know, there's more employees, there's subcontractors... Stat decks are required to be signed to basically prove that employee entitlements have been paid. There's industry-specific solutions. There's also the tightening up of the insolvency profession as well. There's been proposals put to require that anyone who advises on this area has to be a lawyer or a registered liquidator. Right now, there's no controls in that space, so anyone can advise on it. So anyone can step in and say, hey, I've got a solution to you for your cash flow problem. So this has been going on for 40, 50, 60 years, and all that's on the table so far is proposals. Well, there is some legislation that's being passed to enable liquidated clawbacks, but the main criticism of that is it doesn't take us forward in terms of the root cause issues, which means that even if the liquidator has a right to claw back a transfer, which they've already got at law, so, so if it's an uncommercial transfer, so a transfer for no consideration, they can claw it back and they can basically sue the protagonist involved as well. If no one's enforcing it, then there's no point putting another law on top of that that requires the liquidator to take more action. 
when they're not already taking basic action at this point in time. I'm just surprised that the ATO hasn't been screaming more about this. There is a Black Economy Task Force, there's a Phoenix Activity Task Force, there's a whole bunch of steps that they've undertaken. But perhaps if you want to look at it in a global position, we've got a tax process which is based on self-assessment. The ATO itself is geared at allowing self-assessment. So we don't have an inquisitorial uh, tax office. The ways to counter this may be related to a more inquisitorial process. And the ATO, for example, may taking more active steps to require bonds be paid up front for taxes, which is one proposal and a power that they've got, that certain directors are banned, that the ATO takes more active steps to collect taxes. And that's not something that the ATO has done in Australia ever. I get the impression that at the moment there are thousands of Phoenix operators out there who have been doing it for years, for decades, and are not going to be stopped anytime soon. We don't know the exact amount no. of them, but you think there's the lot, that's the first thing. They're in the black economy, so they're not exactly going to advertise. And the government, if it wants to seriously deal with this, it's going to need to look at the root causes and look at actually going after it and looking for quick solutions where you create a new law or where you make announcements about ASIC and the insolvency profession going after this when they've got no resources and no incentive to do it is really um, not going to solve the problem. Creditor defeating this position. So in August of 2018, a bill was proposed called the Treasury Laws Amendment Combating Illegal Financing Bill 2018. And what that bill put forward was a some reforms to insolvency law to specifically target Phoenix activity. And one of the uh, reforms was creating a new offence to target those who conduct or facilitate illegal phoenixing, and it's called the credit-defeating disposition. So basically focusing on transfers of assets that prevent, hinder or significantly delay the creditor's access to company assets. So what this does is creates a new claim the liquidator has to recover assets. So I think we'll just have to see whether that's made into law and whether during the process of submissions being made, whether the government's policy tightens and that becomes a defined Phoenix offence or whether it's an additional recovery or an additional offence that ASIC or the liquidator has and whether um, ASIC actually takes up the cudgel, so to speak, and takes advantage of this law. I looked at it and I was like, man, that's so weak, that reform. Just this creditor-defeating disposition. Yeah, creditor-defeating disposition. It just creates another offence that's are similar to, or a claim that's are similar to claims they've already got. Someone's still got to enforce it, someone's got to have evidence. It just compounds the problem, really, by making it more complex. There's not much hope that this bill comes through. It won't really change anything. It will just make it more complex. It just creates another claim as to whether it changes behaviour, or results in a, um, a better process being undertaken by liquid or by ASIC, I think there's poor prospects of that. Welcome back. 
I still can't get over the fact that every year we lose three to five billion Australian dollars to illegal Phoenix activity. That number is difficult to conceive. Three to five billion dollars each year. Let's hope that the initiatives to stop it will be successful. In the next episode, episode 93, Ben Sewell will talk about the new safe harbor routes for company directors when trading while insolvent. Until then, thank you for listening and thank you to class for their support. Bye for now and see you in the next episode.